0: Well, good morning. Everyone in the room, glad to see you. Everyone online, I I can't see you, but I trust you can see me, and I'm glad we get to spend this time together. Uh, I brought three books for show and tell, because never too old to do a little show and tell. Um, Actually, this is um, three books that have a common thread in how the authors came to Jesus, and yet kind of a distinctive dimension to them, too. The first one is a book by a man named William Ramsey, who lived mostly in the 1800s, but uh, up till just the eve of World War II. And he was in, um, in the UK, he was um, an archaeologist and historian, and he was an avid opponent of Christianity. He thought the Christian faith didn't uh, hold true, it was demonstrably false Etc., etc. And so he decided to investigate it. And along the way, he kept finding place after place where it showed itself to be true, where it showed itself to be accurate, where the historical details that were commonly understood in his day were overturned by fresh studies and kept moving towards the Bible. And along the way, he ceased being an antagonist. And that kind of opened his heart. And he listened to the gospel. And ultimately, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And this is actually a commentary on the two chapters in the book of Revelation that he wrote, and he's quite a, um, p- quite a significant figure in the history of the church. Um, another significant figure that a lot of you will be familiar with, C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis. He went by Jack, and I think if my name were Clive Staples, I would go by Jack as well. Um, he wasn't a believer in his uh, youth and early adulthood, um, but he had a friend who many of you will also know his name, J.R.R. R. Tolkien, and uh, Tolkien was having dialogue with Lewis about the faith, and he, he said something that caused the tumblers to fall into place, if you will, opened Lewis's heart and mind to the possibility of the gospel so that he then listened and allowed the Holy Spirit to work. And here's what he said to him. He said, Jack, you have to understand Christianity is a myth, relax. Okay. We use the word myth like a, an untrue story. Technically, in the way he was using it, because he was always technical, it is this vast explanatory story that shapes a worldview. Here's how we got here. Here's what life means. You know, this, These grand, defining stories, those are myths. Whether they're true or not is a different question. And so as Tolkien, who was an English professor, was talking to Lewis, who was an English professor and was accustomed to using the terminology technically, he said, Jack, think of it as a myth that's true. And when he opened his mind to that possibility, that kind of opened his heart to the work of the Spirit. And He came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, for William Ramsey, it was the compelling nature of the facts. It was just, he had to bow before this relentless stream of facts and details, one after another, that just fell into place. He said, I had to to surrender to that. For C.S. Lewis, it was the compelling beauty and power of the story. The story of Jesus, the story of the gospel, the story of how we got here and what's going on. Both those guys are gone. This guy is still alive. Uh, He's quite elderly, but he's actually still a scholar today. He's one of the most influential sociologists of our day. He's a guy named Rodney Stark. And this book was written in the late 90s. It's called The Rise of Christianity. This and another book that he co authored with somebody kind of overturned the whole understanding in religious sociology of how religions go and particularly of Christianity. Uh, he's incredibly influential. When he wrote this book, he was not a believer. In fact, uh, until um, quite a bit after the year 2000, he would have described himself as a, um, an a- uh, not an atheist, an agnostic. Um, which it, I'd always, I always find it interesting when people who don't believe the word and don't really care about the things that we care about want to be scholars of it. That just is intriguing to me. And he wanted to be a, a sociologist of religion even though he wasn't religious. Go figure. Well, now he teaches at Baylor University, which ought to tell you something because uh, though Baylor is not quite in the same territory Biola is in uh, faith commitment, it is a Christian university that still expects the professors to be professing Christians of some sort, and he teaches there now. Something shifted, and um, he didn't articulate in great detail, so I'm giving you my best read in what happened, but he said basically as he was doing his work, one day he just found he believed, and his work was, was really centered on the church, And I think if we could sit down with Rodney Stark, I think he might just say, it was the beauty and power of the church that opened my heart and mind to what God was doing, that opened the possibility that there might be something actually real here, which was then how God began to work in his heart. This morning we are going to look at one of the most beloved chapters in Scripture, one that is constantly looked at by people who have been followers of Jesus for any period of time, John chapter 17. If you want to go ahead and turn there, it will show up on your screen for those of you that are home, but of course you can turn in your own copy of the Scriptures if you prefer. It is actually about this idea. It is about the idea of a compelling beauty and power to the church that will change the world. Jesus is praying for us, for his early disciples, and then for us about the mission. That's really what this passage is about, and it really drills down into the idea that when we allow God to make us who he's seeking to make us to be, that is a beautiful and powerfully compelling thing. And that's not just a byproduct of the gospel, it's a central strategy of the mission. God intends for the beauty and the power of the church to be a force that compels people joyfully to look at Jesus. Now, I don't know what your experience of the church is, um, but I think that's a beautiful picture. And I know we're ragged and human and all of that, but I think if God is praying this for us, this ought to be something that we let him do in us. How cool would it be if we were the kind of people that if people were around us, they they just looked at Jesus and said, something's going on here, it's pretty amazing, I have to check this out. That's really the idea of John chapter 17. And if you like an outline, the outline this morning is kind of in a narrative form. So Jesus really prays along three three lines, and they're all interconnected. Verses one through eight go together, and in that section, he's praying, and essentially what he's saying is, I have done my job, so they believe. I have done my job, so they believe. That's verses one through eight. Then verses nine through 19 go together, and that section of the prayer is essentially saying, they need help to do their job. They need help to do their job, Then verses 20 through 26 finishes the thought so that others believe and do their job so that others believe and do their job. So you get the idea, right? So the the complete thought of the prayer is I have done my job so they believe they need help to do their job so that others will believe and do their job so that others will believe and do their job, so that others will believe and do their job. That's how John 17 unfolds. So let's just take a look at this first section, and we'll just take it section by section. I've done my job so they believe. Um, In verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now let's just stop for a second and catch the flow. When Jesus had spoken these words... He's talking about all that has said in the upper room, all that's been said. Um, You need to wash one another's feet. You need to serve and love one another. I don't call you servants anymore. I, I call you friends, and so now you can know these things. I want you to abide in me. I want you to abide in my love. I want you to abide in my word so that you can be fruitful and my Father can be glorified. It's better for you if I go away because then... The comforter will come, the the Holy Spirit will come, and that'll be better. He will tell you what you need. He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He will guide you. You will have a hard time at times. You'll be persecuted. There'll be tribulation, but don't worry, I've overcome the world. All of that stuff all of this incredible passage of scripture. Jesus on his last night before he's crucified is, if you will, giving a crash course, every last thing that I really feel compelled to share with you, I want to get it out now. These are the critical things because I'm about to go to the cross and then everything shifts. He's done with that. He said the last thing he needed to say to them. And now he turns and he prays. He shifts his focus and he starts talking to his father. He talks to his father, aware of his disciples being there, so they are auditing the prayer. It's a legitimate prayer, but it's also a legitimate prayer that then gives real guidance and, and, um, and teaching and help for us. So that's what he's doing. And he says, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now, remember in the Gospel of John, when it talks about glorification, it's, it's talking usually about the cross and the resurrection and even ultimately the ascension. And that's what he's saying. Um, I'm done. I'm ready for the final thing. So let's, let's finish this, Father. Let's, let's finish what we came to do. What you sent me into the world to do, I've finished that. And now here's the final piece. It's the crowning piece. It's the most significant piece. We're right on the brink of that, so let's do that. You lead me through this process of glorification, through the death, burial, resurrection, return, exaltation, sinning of the Spirit, that whole package. Let's finish that because as that happens, then you, Father, will be glorified through my life. Okay? So then it goes on. He says, "Since you've given him," he's talking about himself in the third person because he's he's talked about himself as the Son. "Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him." And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I've glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So in this prayer, he says, essentially, I have restored relationships, so now it's time to restore glory. I have restored relationship between God and people. When Adam and Eve chose their own rule to be their own little gods, to say here's how things work and here's what matters, to call the shots. It did a whole lot of damage. Most fundamental, it cut us off from the source of life, God himself, and that relationship became uh, formal, distant. In some ways, there was no relationship. He didn't abandon us, but it was just not, there wasn't intimacy, and we didn't draw his life through us. And he's saying, I've reversed that. This is eternal life. You've given me the power to give eternal life. I have given eternal life. It consists in a relationship with you and me, a vibrant connection. That's been restored. Now, he's speaking about what's about to happen, but it's so certain that he's speaking as if it's already happened. That's been restored, so now restore me to the glory because Jesus laid aside, the son laid aside his expression of his full grandeur to enter the world. And now he's completing his work and now he can go back to heaven and now he can express his grandeur. Now he doesn't lay aside his humanity, but he, he steps back into glory. And he's saying, we're done here. That's, that's what's happened. That's what's going on. And in verse uh, four, he says, I glorified you having accomplished the work you gave me to do. I, I, I glorified you by doing what you sent me to do. I've been here on mission it's a mission from eternity past. This whole section is kind of dripping with language of eternity. And it's, it's what I came to do, and I've done it. Now, verses 6 through 8 kind of expand on what does that look like? I've done it. Verse 6, how did he do his work? Well, he, he says, I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. right? I, I revealed you to them. Manifesting your name isn't just saying, hey, uh, God. Hey, uh, Father, uh, Yahweh, uh, Lord. It's, it's saying, I have I've personally revealed you, your character. I've revealed you in ways that nobody else has, and they now know you. And they know things about me because of this... This ministry I've had among them too. They know everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me. They've received them and have come to know in truth I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So now they know you and they know me. I'm the one you sent to bring this radical redemption. Changing everything. I'm your unique messenger who's come into the world. They believe that. They've embraced that. So Jesus has prayed. He said, Father, I finished my job, so they believe. And now he's going to shift focus and start praying for his disciples. Starting in verse 9 then, he says, essentially the theme unfolds around this idea. They need help to do their job. I finished my job, so they believe. They now need help to do their job. Let's pick it up. Verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. It's it's worth just commenting for a second. It doesn't mean Jesus doesn't care about the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Uh, But to pray for his disciples is actually the most effective prayer for the world. Because God has one plan for affecting the world. And that's his people. If his people thrive if his people become who they are supposed to be, if his people live as they're supposed to live, the world will be impacted redemptively. And if they don't, it doesn't matter because that's his only plan. So Jesus isn't saying, I don't care about the world. He actually does care about the world and praying for his people is gonna bless his people and it's gonna bless the world. So follow along, verse 10 All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. I've kept them all, well, except for Judas Judas, and that's tragic, but it's not a fail because he actually accomplished your plan anyway. Verse 13, now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That's worth unpacking for a second. He's not really saying anything happy so far. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of heavy stuff. You're gonna suffer, you're gonna struggle, I'm leaving. You know, the world hates them. he's about to say that. Um, where does the joy come in? Well, he's, he's letting them in on what God's doing. He said, I've, I've revealed you to them, I've revealed me to them, and I revealed your plan to them. Now, now understand, and these things that are happening, they're not random. They're going somewhere. And even the hard things that are happening, you're using those things. So they can have my joy well up within them because even in the midst of pain, they can see your hand. Even in the midst of hardship, they can see your victory. Even through what seems like defeat, you're working victory. And now they know that. So when they're going through it on the front end and it's so confusing, they can take a step back in faith and say, God's here, God's working. He told us it would be this way. Hallelujah, I don't like this, but I trust God. And they can have joy while up within them. Verse 14, I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So let's stop and capture what he's praying here. It says, God... Father, I'm leaving the world and I'm leaving them in the world. That's hard for them. That's challenging. The world doesn't accept them. They are on a different wavelength. Now, in order to understand this, we have to understand the world doesn't fit on a map. It's a spiritual realm he's talking about. It's not not a system of geography it's a system of ideas, a system of thoughts and values that drive culture, drive society in the wrong direction. It is a rival kingdom with a wicked, powerful, rival ruler. And that's, that's the context for their lives. Now, we might look at that and say, well, just then protect me You know, keep all that bad stuff, all that icky stuff off of me. Make it go smooth for me. You know, hermetically seal me in one of those, you ever see what was a Jurassic World, where they're in those little balls that can roll through the thing? You know, it it works fine until the really big dinosaur comes along and and crunches it right open. It's like, that's the world we live in. We want to be in these little balls. There's always a bigger dinosaur that's going to crunch it open, and then we're going to be in trouble. Think about this. I like to be protected from hard things. But it is impossible. It is impossible for God to simultaneously insulate me from a world that he's sending me to. Can't do that. If I'm insulated, I can't go into the world. And if I'm going into the world, I can't be insulated from all the stuff that's there. And I'm sent into the world. So the hard stuff's there. That's why he's praying. I'm not asking you to take him out. We couldn't accomplish what we've set out to accomplish. If that were the case, I'm asking you to protect them from the evil ruler. I'm about to strike the decisive blow, but he will still be a force to be reckoned with. And I'm leaving my people here. And the world system and they are not in alignment, which means there's going to be friction, there's going to be struggle. Protect them in that. Let's keep going. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for, the sake, for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, let's unpack this a little bit because it's easy to misunderstand. Sanctify them in truth. And then it says, again, sanctify in verse 19. Um, Here's a really, really critical insight that you need to understand this. Are you ready for this? This is the observation that is really important. Verse 18 sits between verses 17 and 19. That's why they pay me the big bucks that's why I went to all that schooling and study all those books. So I could tell you verse 18 is between verses 17 and 19. Wow. Isn't that a great, didn't that blow your mind? Actually, you don't need to have all kinds of education to just read carefully. If you think about it, if it's talking about sanctification and sanctification, but then right in the middle, it says, what does it say? As you sent me into the world. So I've sent them into the world. That doesn't that doesn't seem to line up at first. Wait, I thought you were talking about holiness, and now you're talking about mission, and now you're talking about holiness again. And, and you're saying that you're sanctifying yourself. Some of your versions say that. My version kind of shifted it to say, what does it consecrate, dedicate? Uh, it says consecrate. That's helpful. Same word all the way through. Here's what's going on. We have taken the word holiness, and we've taken the word sanctify, and we've narrowed it down to one aspect of its meaning. It's actually bigger than the word we use and it's more fundamental than the, we, think, we think about it and that's how Jesus is using it here. He's not actually talking about, God, I'm praying that by your word they would have higher moral fiber and greater moral purity. That is true, and in fact, the sanctifying that he's talking about will entail that, but he's talking about something deeper. Sanctify, to be made holy, the idea of holy, fundamentally means different. Other, set apart. And the idea here is set them apart and use your word to reinforce and shape that. As I was sent into the world I'm sending them into the world, and I set myself apart to complete the task you've given me so that they will be set apart to complete the task you're giving them. This is all about mission. This is all about these are my people who are continuing the work that I have done. Sanctify them for that, set them apart. Prepare them, consecrate them. That's a word that we don't use real often, but when we do, at least it helps us a little bit understand what he's saying here. The the moral purity, it's part of being set apart to God, but fundamentally holiness is I'm a God guy and not a non-God guy. And that's the way to understand me. If you can understand me apart from God, then I'm not holy. Because that's my fundamental reality. So so he's saying, set them apart. Just as I'm setting myself apart right now, even to finish this hard task that you've given me to do, to accomplish your will, do the same for them. And do that, and I, actually, I, you've, they've got your word to shape them and prepare them, and they've got my example to shape them and prepare them. As you sent me, so I send them. They can look at my life. They can look at your word. That can shape them so they can be engaged the way you want them to be engaged, partnered with you in this redemptive work in the world. Okay, you with me? So first section of the prayer, God, I have finished my work. I finished my job, so they believe. Second part, God, they need help to finish their job. So they need you to protect them. I've been protecting them, you protect them. Keep them together. Protect them from Satan. They have the word, they have my example. Prepare them, set them apart, consecrate them. Sanctify them for this. They need your help. And then the last section, so others will believe and do their job and others will believe and do their job and so on, right? Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's talking about us, right? The middle section was focused specifically on the, the disciples that are right there. And there's things that we can learn from that because we're following in their footsteps. So we can more or less take what he says to them and just apply it in our lives. This last section is actually specifically focused on us. And not even just talking about, well, they're gonna tell people who are gonna tell people who are gonna tell people who are gonna tell people. True enough, and one day, somewhere, somebody's gonna tell me and I'm gonna respond. But I'm literally the one who has believed in their words. And that's why I'm a follower of Jesus. Listening to him at this moment a guys named Matthew and Peter and John who are fundamentally the reason we're all here because the Holy Spirit used their message to transform our lives. So he's praying for us. He's praying for us. And the prayer follows the the narrative flow. Praying for us, praying for you guys so that you may believe and do your job so that others may believe and do their job so that others may believe, right? It's about disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And as he talks about that, he says something really, really significant. We'll continue on. I'm praying not only for these, but also for those who believe through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us. Right? I'm praying that they will have unity so that the world may believe that you've sent me. In other words, so that the world will believe the gospel. I'm praying that they'll be together like you and I are, not just kind of casually together, not just kind of sort of together, not just kind of barely tolerating each other or gathering in a place every once in a while and being kind in in a general kind of distant, polite way, but actually have unity and community so that the world will actually believe the gospel, so that they'll believe I am who I claim to be. It goes on, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one he's basically just taking what he said and upping the intensity the dial goes from a 5 to a 10 and he says all of this that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me praying that you will make them one in an extraordinary way so that people will respond to the gospel. And then he kind of launches his eyes a little further into the future and he wants it all complete. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me, and I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. All right, this last section, before he just launches in saying, oh, let's just bring it all full circle, and let's bring them all home to heaven, and let's all just have a great eternal love fest together. He says, God, I finished my job so they believe. <laughs> they need help to finish their job so that others will believe and do their job so that others will believe and do their job so that others will be, believe and do their job. I'm leaving. I've said everything that I need to say. The next thing that's going to happen is I'm going to be praying in a garden, arrested, crucified. It, it, things are going to start moving fast. I said what I needed to say, and now, God, here we are. This is, this is his, if you will, baton pass in prayer. And here's what I long for. As this movement, as this people that I've drawn together in your name, in my name, by our spirit, as they move forward from here, I'm leaving the world, and I'm leaving them in the world, and that's tough, but that's on purpose because that's the plan. Would you empower them to do the mission And absolutely central to that is would you bind them together, just like you and I are? Would you bring them into this amazing intimacy with each other and fellowship and love for one another? Now, there's a lot of amazing things that we could dive into in this passage. We just can't spend the time on so many things that would be so encouraging. We're going to focus on two things and ask a couple of questions. Two things I think are actually central. The first one is um, this. Mission is the point. Mission is the point. And the second thing is this. Unity is the paint. Unity is the paint. Mission is the point. Unity is the paint. God is displaying his glory and his splendor as he transforms the world. And the mission of God is the mission of the church, and that's the entire point. And the reality of that is painted in ways that people can understand and see and be drawn to and go, whoa, it's, it's the power and beauty of the church that says, I better take another look at God. That's the paint God's gonna paint with. So let's just talk about that for a few minutes. And let's ask ourselves some questions individually and then as a church because it's a, um, a me-us thing. It's a you-us thing, right? Sometimes we think of the, the gospel in terms of Jesus died for you and 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 you. And, and when it comes to salvation, God's a Texan. Jesus died for all y'all, right? All y'all, you and you and you and you and you and us, all y'all, all of us. There's a collective dynamic that we, that's absolutely central, and he draws each of us individually as individual persons to a place of transformation and brings us into a new community, and that new community is not just entrusted with the message of the gospel, it enfleshes that, Right? What power is there in a message that says God will change everything and will restore and reconcile and fill your life with love and significance and meaning and make everything shalom that doesn't actually create people who are filled with love and meaning and shalom and reconcile to one another? It, it can't it's like, well, who wants to buy that product? Who wants to listen to that message? Who wants to respond to that offer? That doesn't make any sense. It's it's right at the center of God's strategy, not just that we would proclaim the message, but then we'd portray the message. Those things are too too tightly intertwined. And in this prayer, Jesus really, really says the mission is the point and the and, and, and unity is the pain. So let's look at the mission part first. Now, let's just ask a question. If the mission's the point, where's the mission in my life? This is what Jesus prayed for me. Some of us feel like, "Ah, I don't know. I I mean, I, I, I get a good case of the guilties when we start talking about sharing your faith. This isn't about that. I mean, obviously, we are responsible. I mean, we could take that tone and say, do this or you're not obeying Jesus. You're not being the kind of Christian that he envisions. You're not really a very good disciple at all. If you're not, you know, you're supposed to be like Jesus. He's a redemptive servant. Where's your redemptive servanthood? That's actually true and legitimate. But that's not where we want to go this morning because the point is he's praying this for us. He's having a conversation with the Father saying, this is where we're going. Right? So, this is an encouragement for those of you that feel like I'm always struggling to even think, how can I make a difference and who could I ever talk to and how could I ever be used? You can. Prayer is a powerful thing. I've seen some of my prayers answered. You've probably seen some of your prayers answered. I also have ones that I wonder what happened. But this is Jesus. Do you think his prayers get answered? This is the Son of God talking to God the Father, saying, here's what we're doing. Is that going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, a, that's actually a, a source of hope to say, where's the mission in my life? Where should it be? Where's the opportunity? What is, what's God doing around me? I prayed. Actually, I prayed earlier last week. So, like, Lord, it's been a while since I've actually shared the gospel one-on-one with somebody. And like that was a week and a half ago, this last week, um, the opportunity just popped up. And I shared the gospel with somebody, right? God is not trying to say, well, if you're good enough and you can overcome the hurdles and you can undo the lockbox and get out of the mystery room. And it's like, he's just saying, there's a world out there. I'm sending you to reach it and I'm gonna empower you to do it. Where's the mission in your life? What is it that he wants? Where's he working that he wants to call you into that? Where's that for us as a church? If our focus is constantly inward, we're not going to do this very well, but if we lift our eyes beyond ourselves and open our hearts, all kinds of things can happen. The mission is the point. So, where's the mission? Is the first question. Then the second question is this, and this is really critical: What's the mission? What's the mission? And you would think it would be obvious, but it's not. It keeps getting lost. So let's just look back at a couple of things in this passage. Verse 3, here's what eternal life is, a new relationship, that they would know you and they would know me. Not know about, but have an, a vibrant, transformative, intimate, personal relationship. The mission is that people would come into a vibrant, infinite, uh, infinite, intimate, transformative relationship. That's the mission. And then he says in, well, let's read verses 7 and 8. He's talking about his disciples. They know that everything that you've given me is from you. I've given them the words that you gave me. They've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. The mission also involves a particular message about Jesus, particular truths about Jesus that have to be proclaimed, understood, and embraced. It's really clear in verses 7 and 8. It's implicit in verse 13. Shows up again explicitly in verses 20 to 23. Again in verse 25. So here's the mission. There's a specific message that must be proclaimed that specifically calls out, highlights, and celebrates things about Jesus that must be understood and embraced. And in that People can have a transformed, intimate, personal relationship with God and be brought into this new family of his people. That's the mission. That's what he says. I'm leaving here. I'm leaving them here. Protect them because they've got a mission to do. You sent me into the world, and I'm sending them just like you sent me. They've got a mission to do. There's the mission. The mission is not caring for the earth. The mission is not getting the Supreme Court the right way and overturning Roe v. Wade. The mission is not freedom of conscience. The mission is not fairness in culture. There's so many other things. Now, here's the tricky part, and listen carefully. We are really bad at nuance, and that's a problem. We have got to get better at nuance, because the truth is not always one, two, three, here you go. Everything I just talked about matters, and everything I just talked about connects with the mission in some way. It may be an entailment of the mission. It may be an just a, a, a display of the mission. It may be a result of the mission, but it's not the mission. The mission is that people come into a radically transformative relationship with God because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and they join his family that is being transformed and changed in the world and that family because that sanctification isn't just set apart to that specific work but it's set apart to be like God, live like God, think like God, act like God. That family will care for the earth well, will care for other people well, will care for how people are are, are on the margins and maybe not treated fairly. Will take responsibility and say it's not all about what everyone does for me. It, that family will actually be able to navigate those issues better. But I have to be really clear on what the mission is, and I have to keep that center. We have to keep that center. And then the other things may be an important part, but the centerpiece is Jesus. I was talking with somebody. Well, I'll skip that for time. You'll have to grab me later. I have a really interesting story. Too bad you can't hear it. Nina, Nina. (laughs) Um, I I will say one thing, though, real quickly. It's very interesting. One of the things that Rodney Stark points out at a... um, human level, which is all he was capable of at the time he wrote this book because he was not yet a believer, he was still an agnostic, was the culture in which the early Christianity rose. There were at least a couple of things that I find interesting that were fundamental to how the church was able to grow. One was how the church treated people who were mistreated, marginalized, put down, prejudiced against. In their culture, that was women and slaves. But it was dealing with people like that, how the church treated them stood out. The other key thing that he calls out, you can read it yourself. I'm not making this up. It's in this book. How the church responded to pandemic. Whoa. If you could pick two things that are more central to what is in everyone's mind right now, unless it's, how long is he going to go? Because I'm getting hungry for lunch. That's probably rising up in some of your minds. But other than that, those are like the two hot issues on our plate right now. And the early church thrived because of how they went through that. Wouldn't it be cool if we did too? What an opportunity. I think we've not done so well so far. But it's time for a reboot. Let's do better. Anyway, that was a freebie. And you can still ask me about that interesting story. I'm moving on. Because unity is the paint. Let's talk about that for a second. You see how important he makes it? It's like that they may be one, that they may be one, they may be one. Like you and I are one. There's this connection, by the way, with God. We don't have time to develop that. But John 15 keeps showing up again and again. Remember how he said, abide in me, abide in my word, abide in my love. In different terms, all three of those saturate this passage, right? But he's really focusing on the unity of the church. It's the paint that gives the picture to the world. How is our unity? That's a struggle. It's been a struggle from the beginning. Diatrophes loves to have preeminence. I'll deal with him when I get there. Says John. Yodia and what did you call? Odious and soon touchy is what I also called her. What did you call? Stinky. Odious and stinky. So his his name's a little better. My name is soon touchy, right? Paul's dealing with this conflict in the church in Philippi. That was back in the day, right? James. It's like James is filled with we're not doing this unity thing very well. First off, we're paying more attention to rich people than poor people, and then we're praising God and cursing others, and then we don't have things because we have this quarrelsomeness and we're biting and devouring one another. It's like, well, that's not a very good picture of the church. It's it's no accident that in First Timothy three one of the requirements to be an elder is not being quarrelsome, because we so easily become quarrelsome. Or in Corinthians, Paul says, you know, why are you dividing up like this? I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of this guy, I'm of that guy. You know, that's eerily familiar today. Only now we've got more opportunities. It's not just who's my favorite person in the church. It can be anyone in the world. We can talk about I'm of this guy, I'm of that guy, and we can start picking sides. And it's like, wow. We need to be together. It's hard. But it's not optional. It's not secondary. It's not even really important. It is part and parcel of the entire strategy of the mission. I pray that you would be in unity so that the gospel would be believed. So that people would accept me for who I really am. Why? are we so quick to choose up sides and start whacking each other? That is not what God wants. Well, there's a lot of things, and these things are important. There are a lot of things. Many of them are important. But here's a question, and I think this is a helpful thing, too. When you're ready to divide, not to disagree. There's a lot of disagreement. And sometimes arguing in the best sense is actually helpful Let's wrestle this through. Let's do it humbly, let's do it in a spirit-filled way, but let's argue our way to a deeper, greater understanding, and let's listen to each other and challenge each other. That's how we grow. That's one of the benefits actually of being a community, but community is destroyed when we start attacking, when we start dividing. What do we divide over? What are we ready to go to war over? Here's a quick test that I would suggest. Ask yourself, did Jesus pray for this? Because he did pray for unity, and it was a big thing. So if I'm about to go against unity somehow, did he pray for that? There's actually not a lot in this passage that I can go to. I can certainly go to the gospel. He's made that really clear. It's about a new relationship. It's about understanding who I am. It's about accepting those things. Those things are uncompromisable. And we will divide, and if necessary, even if you will, not physically, obviously, go to war over those things. But how many other things fall in that category? And how quick are we to make lesser things more important than they are and in the process destroy what God is doing and undermine the name of Jesus? Jesus will either be authenticated or nullified by how we live. We will either declare or deface the gospel by how we live. Unity is the paint that he uses to show the beauty of the gospel. His new people living in a new way. Not easy. But Jesus is the one praying it. And he said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you can do it. There's a lot of room for growth, but there's even more room for hope. And that's my prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be defined by you. That we would be set apart. We would be holy. We would be yours. And that everything would flow from that. That the mission would be central to everything. And that unity would be so precious to us. And it would be the outgrowth of who we are in you. That we would love even when it's hard. That we would pursue. We wouldn't be soft. We wouldn't compromise truth. We wouldn't reduce love to being nice, but that we would really love. And then when people see us, they say, wow, there's something beautiful and powerful there. You've done something in that guy. I don't know how you did that with him. I want you to do that with me. Lord, may that be true of all of us. May that be true of us as a church family. And may your gospel go forth because of that. I pray for this offering that we receive. I pray that you'd use these gifts to bless the world by spreading your word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.